you know, one of the special things about Chinese medicine, which can feel like a burden, or it can feel like an inspiration, is the the kind of message taught in uh, in the Neijing Yellow Emperor's Classic, and also embodied by doctors such as Sun Miao, that a doctor is a cultivated person. And when I say cultivated, I don't mean they go to the opera, although they might. I mean a self-cultivated person. And the power that that has, the healing power that has. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. I hear patients say some pretty interesting things in clinic. I suspect that you do as well. I can always tell when something significant is said. There's a kind of a shimmer in the room, and I feel the impact of it smack dab in the middle of my chest. The feeling is not unlike that of a well-placed and potent acupuncture needle. There's a rippling stillness that echoes in the room, along with a comfortable pause in the conversation. Whatever it was that the patient just said, I write it down in the clinic notes. More often than not, for me, because while it is my patient who is the one that had the experience, I too feel the truth of it. It happened again just the other day. In inquiring as to how a patient was doing, she replied, my curiosity is steering more than my anxiety. Did you get that? What does it do to you when you hear those words, my creativity is steering more than my anxiety? It's a subtle shift. It's not that the anxiety is gone. It's not that life is perfect, but her internal ecosystem, it spins on a different axis. Now, I don't know what creativity means for her. I don't know how it actually feels for her or what kind of choices get her attention when her creativity has the wheel or if the choices are different from what her anxiety might have chosen. But I do know this. She was happier. She was leaning more into a sense of generative possibility. Life was less of a problem to fix, and she seemed to be playfully less attached to results. It raises a question for me. What if I was leaning more on creativity than anxiety or curiosity or playfulness or the liminal potential of uncertainty? It makes me wonder about the other patients I have who have anxiety And what other latent resources they might have? What if in clinic, I worked less on reducing their anxiety and more on boosting up the joy in the heart, the meaning-making capacity of the spleen, or maybe the vitality of the embodied pore in the lung, or the dark, watery mystery of the kidneys, or yes, the effusive, generative creativity of the wood in the liver. Often enough, as in nature, maybe we don't need to get rid of something troublesome. We need simply to bring in something else that is more vital and generative. The system will naturally become more coherently invigorated and then lean on that. The trick, of course, is finding out what the patient needs that they'd rather lean on besides their anxiety. 
I don't have an easy answer for you on this other than to realize that it is a possibility and to listen for my patients to tell me what it is that they actually need. How does anyone decide that they're going to do something? Ask any high school student what they want to do. And if you're an adult, they'll give you an answer to brush you off. But inquire deeper, especially if you have a relationship infused with trust. And the answer will be, how am I supposed to know what to do with my life at the age of 18? That fertile, not sure, and in the process of requiry, that's not a bad stance. Peter Dedman, the guest of this episode, wasn't so sure what he wanted to do. And like so many, he took to the road. And it turns out that he had a bit of an entrepreneurial bent as well, which is a polite way of saying, you know, like having a boss. That attitude, it has served him well. And it's been a benefit for our acupuncture and East Asian community as well. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with Peter, and I think you will as well. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi, folks. I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident 
about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app slash switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Peter Dedman, welcome back to Geological. Great to be here. Thanks, Max. Wonderful to have you. So today we're doing, this is part of a history series. It's a look at the early days of our profession, kind of before there was a profession. You know, there was a time that acupuncture and Chinese medicine, mostly in the Oriental community, something seemed to happen in the 60s and 70s. And uh, you were part of that stream. I'd, I'd like to get a sense from you, as, just as a place to start, where was it when you first heard about acupuncture? Where were you? Was it, and if, can you like remember the time of year? Do you remember the weather? Do you remember <laughs> what the newspaper headlines were like? Right? What were the issues of the day? Like, what what were the struggles that you were facing as a young man when you first heard acupuncture, and it got your attention in a way that something shifted? Memory is a funny thing, and I can't remember exactly the place, and I can't remember the weather, and I certainly can't remember what else was going on, but. What I do remember is that I was, for a time, deeply into uh, the macrobiotic diet as taught by George Asawa and Michio Kushi. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, That is uh, a Japanese-based natural foods diet that promised the ability to prevent disease and restore health. A kind of sensible diet, actually, very much based around whole grains and lots of vegetables and lots of pulses and not much animal food. Anyway, I had led a very dissolute life up to that time and was um, in the early stages of being reformed character. I had set up a natural food business, at a initially a restaurant, then a shop, and was... How old were you at this point? I was uh, 22, I think. Yeah, 22. 22. Yep. All right. You're kind of reforming your life and you're setting up a restaurant at age 22. Yeah. Well, I got, I got, um, I started really early. (laughs) I I started sort of 
started drugs and travelling and living on beaches from the age of about 16 or 17. So by the time I got to 21, I'd got all that done and I was really ready to to start doing things in the world. And for me, this, the, the macrobiotic and natural food thing was the first thing I found that I felt passionate about. Up to then, it had been a whole list of things I knew I didn't want to do. For example, I got a place to go to uh, one of the most prestigious colleges at Oxford University, and then I just decided that wasn't me. So there was a lot of no, and this was the big yes. And so within that macrobiotic community, because it came from Japan, there was quite a lot of shiatsu. So I was going to seminars and I was learning about a little bit about um, meridians, channels, and some points in the in the shiatsu context. And that obviously naturally led to the realisation that the other way of treating them was to stick needles in. So that was my first introduction to acupuncture. And then I actually had some acupuncture in my hometown from, I guess, a real pioneer uh, that set me... I think I was seeing him and just constantly talking to him about what was going on. And he said, why don't you study it? So I jumped ship. I left the uh, natural food business. and Well, actually, I went... I stayed working in the natural food business, business right through college until I qualified... So I went to school in 1975, and I qualified in 1978. So he said, why don't you go study it? Did you give that some thought? Did you give yourself a little time, mull it over? Or was it one of these things where he said it and you're like, yep, that's what I'm going to do? No, actually, I don't think it really registered at the time. Mm. I, I've had several periods in my life when I knew I didn't want to keep on doing what I was doing, but I didn't know what was going to come next. And they were kind of quite difficult periods. I, I, you know, I felt kind of confused, uncertain, lost. Um, I knew I didn't want to carry on running a business, a foods business. However, idealistic it was, and it was very idealistic. It was also very hard work. So I was kind of swirling around in this mist of uncertainty. Oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then I do remember I woke up one morning and it was exactly like a light bulb going on in my head. And that was, oh, I'm going to study acupuncture. So I guess these words had sort of sat in there for a while underneath my conscious level. I, I get it. I've spent much of my life not knowing what I wanted to do, but certainly knew what I didn't want to do. I knew what to avoid. Didn't always know what to go to. And uh, man, acupuncture, that just kind of sat in the back of my mind for years. And, and it wouldn't go away. Lots of other ideas would come up about things to do. But acupuncture was, it, it just didn't go away. It was quiet. It wasn't like you have to do this but it was persistent. Yep. Yep. 
funny how those things go. So where did you go to school? What did you learn? What did an acupuncture education look like in 1975 in, uh, yeah. in Great Britain? Because I don't think we even had schools in 75 here in the United States. So you've got a slightly different history than we do. Yeah. So actually, I was just in the States. I went to a um, Taichi and Qigong Health in the Community, a you know, whole, whole body health research conference in Boston, and then went to Worcester and taught a half day at the New England School of Acupuncture. I'm pretty sure that was already going then. So, so Nisa was already up and running? Yeah. Okay. So luckily there was a school fairly near me, an hour's drive away, which was great. So I went to that. Uh, you said, what was the education like? I mean, you're interested in the history, so I could give you a bit of background. As I understand it, I don't want to get anything wrong, and I'm not an expert, but my understanding is that Three guys from the UK went together to Hong Kong for a very short period of time. I mean, really short period of time. And studied with a Vietnamese doctor called, I think it was Vietnamese, called Wu Wei Ping. He wrote a book. It was an acupuncture book by Wu Wei Ping. Um, and they came back, and in the true spirit of Chinese medicine friendship, they all fell out with each other. And they, went, <laughs> and, they, and they went off and set up three separate schools. So one was a doctor, so he set up a medical, just for, just a school just for doctors, people with medical education. There was J.R. Worsley, the inventor of the Five Elements School, who went off and set up his thing, and there was um, a osteopath called Dick Van Buren who set up the school I went to. Mm. Yep. Now, how long was the training to become an acupuncturist back then? I mean, these days it's like five or six years. No, it was three years part-time. Three years part-time. And the education was very, very mixed. So... The one thing I'm really grateful to the school I went to for was it was very thorough in teaching the channels and points. No mucking around, you had to learn every single acupuncture point and you had to learn, well, you learned the primary channels. Like a lot of schools, there wasn't much, really much emphasis on secondary channels, but certainly the primary channels. That was great. The theory teaching was absolutely appalling. I mean, it was, I could, you know, have to restrain my, my <laughs> have to restrain myself from conveying how difficult and how bad it was. And part of the problem, I think it was the same with all three schools, that was that, quite understandably, these three different guys just didn't know very much. You know, they, their training was... I mean, I was told two weeks, but it might have been more than that. So they really didn't know very much. Fair enough. But the words I don't know never, ever passed their lips. Mm. So it was, there was a great deal of invention. 
So Worsley invented five-element acupuncture and Van Brewer invented all kinds of things which changed from day to day, had no consistency, didn't really make sense. Um, Could it be that at that time he was working it out himself? He's trying to figure it out and teaching whatever seemed to make sense at the moment because, you know, we go through this, we get a, a modicum of something, and then we figure out how things really work. I think to do that, you have to be sincere, honest. Um, you have to constantly self-evaluate. You have to be open to learning from your mistakes. That mm. was not the psychology of, I can't speak for the others, that was not his psychology. Um, his, you know, he was revered. You know, it was slight, you know, very mildly cultish. So it was one of those situations where, as far as the lot, a lot of the students were concerned, every word you said was pure gold, even if it completely contradicted what you said before. I, unfortunately or fortunately, was born with a rather powerful bullshit detector. And I, I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't bear it, really. It, was, yeah, it you know, didn't fly with you. So how did you learn it? How did you manage to pull out what was nourishment and useful and let go of, of the stuff that was just made up or bullshit? Um, I, I, the first two years, I, I mean, the first two years I was learning the acupuncture points and channels, so I, I did respect that. The rest of it I was... I despaired of and in fact at the beginning of my third year because the first lecture we received was from this guy I actually got up and walked out and said to myself I'm not going back but actually I stayed and two really important things for me happened the first is that the theory part of the third year was taught by Giovanni Machacha. And although he was a bit in the same situation as, as everybody, really, with limited Chinese medicine education, he read French texts and he read Italian texts, and particularly French. So the French obviously had a quite strong connection to um, acupuncture through the Vietnamese tradition, and particularly. Uh, a guy called Chamfort, who wrote a textbook. And Giovanni was, a, you know, he was thoughtful, he was studious, um, he was down to earth. And I actually began to relish learning from him. And the second thing that happened, which was even more influential for me, was that, uh, so Ted Kapchuk had come back from Macau um, having studied Chinese medicine for three years in a Chinese medicine school. And he'd come back and he'd started lecturing in the States. And as is the way of things, some enterprising student um, printed out the entire notes of his lectures and they started circulating through the Chinese medicine community. And... Um, for me, this was pure gold dust. For the first time, I had a sense that I was learning 
something sort of deep, rich, true, which held together, which made sense. We almost fell out about it, actually, because in my final year dissertation, I wrote my kind of interpretation based on his notes. I wrote a kind of quite long core theory of Chinese medicine, and then soon after he turned up in the UK and accused me of plagiarism. Yeah. Oh. Well, that's interesting. His his note, it was like bootleg copies of his notes Yeah, is what kept you going. Yeah. And, and it had material that made sense to you. You could follow it. Well, it had the basic Chinese medicine curriculum, you know, the functions of the tongue full, the functions of qi, blood, body fluids, the uh, differentiation of patterns, diagnosis. I mean, you know, what we now, unfortunately, I hate the term, I really do, but what people call TCM. Mm. I would call it Chinese medicine. What's, tell me a little more about that, Chinese medicine, TCM, what, what's the distinction that, that you have in your mind? Sounds like it's a little different from the, what's in the common parlance. So the, okay, my take on it is that the Worsley's Five Elements School was pretty strong in the UK. He was British. He was teaching, you know, he had a, he had a, a college and people loved what he was teaching because, it, I mean, I know it's really popular and I know lots of people swear by it. To me, it was all a bit fanciful. That's my, my take on it. Um, and that opinion hasn't changed over the last, whatever it is, 40 or 50 years. So, and they, and they learnt no Chinese medicine. I mean, they didn't learn uh, Zhangfu functions. They didn't learn differentiation patterns. They didn't learn tongue diagnosis. They were forbidden at that time from reading any books that were not sanctioned by the Five Elements School. It was, you know, again, slightly cultish. So when the kind of Chinese medicine that was being taught in universities in China and had been since roughly the 1950s, when that appeared, it had to be given a name different from Five Elements. So it was called traditional Chinese medicine. Maybe, I can't remember, maybe that's what the Chinese government named it as. Um, but it was kind of identified as a school of Chinese medicine rather than just being Chinese medicine. Mm. And there was quite a lot of um, criticism of it. One criticism was that under the, you know, strict hand of communism, a lot of the spiritual stuff had been stripped out of Chinese medicine. I mean, that's a big discussion. I think that's far too simplistic. Um, and the other was that it was the herbalization of Chinese medicine, which had a little bit of truth to it. But certainly um, when I, I went to China in 1981 and the doctors I worked with were great. They were fantastic acupuncturists. They were, and they embraced wide and deep traditions. You know, they were um, really focused on channels as well as Zhang Fu theory, 
their techniques were fantastic. So I always, another element, I have to say, I don't know if anybody else has picked up on this, I think there was a bit of anti-communism in it, in the criticism of so-called TCM, particularly from people who wanted... So, sorry, I'm just going, carrying on to interrupt me if you want, but... No, no, not at all. I mean, this is, this is exactly, Peter, the kind of thing that I'm interested in. Because, look, in the early days, just learning this stuff was not so easy. And how do you even know that you're getting the right thing? and not just something made up, right? I mean, you, you've got a rather discerning mind. You were able to filter out some bullshit and then some, uh, you know, uh, bootleg copies of notes found their way to you. That was damn nourishing. You know, you could, you could really dig into that. And, and it sounds like it helped you to learn the medicine. That's all well and good. You know, people can write things in books. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. I remember being in school reading a book on acupuncture, a guy named Deadman, actually. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and it's a great, it, it's a great book, but there's a part of me that's thinking, all right, some guy wrote this in a book and where did he get it? Well, someone else wrote it in a book and does it really carry water? Well, you, you find that out in clinic and it sounds like you went to, to China and you realized, yeah, this, this is the stuff. I'm watching it unfold in front of me. Yeah. So I, you know, I'd been through three years of college. I'd worked in the college clinic for a couple of years under the um, guidance of this guy, Van Buren. I'd practiced for two years. So I had some acquaintance with acupuncture. I never really understood how powerful acupuncture was till I went to China and saw it practiced by these doctors there. I mean, it was a completely different animal. I just want to go back a bit to two things. I don't know if I can remember them both. Yeah, one is, so from 19, right, right through 75 to 78, there were maybe four books on acupuncture in English. That was the sum total. And even, you know, the first book published in English in China had absolutely no theory in it at all. It was just points, channels, and semi-empirical treatments. That was one thing. The other thing, just going back to something you said at, at the beginning, like why did all this happen in the 60s or 70s? And certainly, and I'm sure it was the same in the States, it was a time in Western cultural life when people started looking to the East I mean, they always had done. Going back to the 19th century, people had been fascinated by um, Eastern culture, but it was the kind of new, let's, let's loosely call them the, the beats and the hippies mm. who were inspired by Eastern traditions. And that was actually China was less so than India. So people were going to India and they're coming back wearing bells and long floppy clothes and chanting bits of, of kind of, you know, om and, you know, and being all spiritual. And some of us were more attracted to Japanese and Chinese culture, but it was a big thing. It was just the tide, the cultural tide of the time. 
everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. That makes sense. That, that sounds right. I was pretty young in the 60s, but I remember looking at like the hippies and, with a lot of admiration. It's like, wow, they're doing something really different. And, and I think that's also the first inklings I had that, wow, there are these places outside of the country where I live, and it's really different. Yeah, and exciting. Yes. I didn't even know what, I, I mean, when I was 15, my brother and I used to go to this esoteric bookshop in London and pick up books on, you know, mystical Tibetan monks and, you know, all the weird stuff, you know, and, and you know, attempting to meditate, not really knowing what we're doing and not even knowing what we're looking for, but having the feeling. You had some kind of impulse. Yeah, there was something out there. Yeah. I, I was just going through my bookshelf the other day. I, I just recently changed rooms with from my office and that means unloading the bookshelf and then reloading it which means you get to touch each book twice and decide if you want to keep them or not and sometimes you find a book you, you forgot you had i've got an old copy speaking of weird old books i've got an old copy of the uh secret of the golden flower oh yeah richard royal yes yeah and, and i've been reading through it it's as difficult to read now as it was when I picked it up over 30 years ago. I mean, it's, I mean, I've got a little bit of background at this point in some of this stuff and it's almost impenetrable for me. Yeah. I think I had the same experience. Yes. Mm. Yeah. I'm not very esoteric. Um, I'm rather down to earth. Yeah. So speaking of down to earth, you, Go to China and you find out that acupuncture is amazingly more powerful than you'd suspected. What did you know? What did you see? What happened? So just briefly about that trip, it was organized by Giovanni Machocha, and it was the first time that pre-existing acupuncturists went to study in China. So they'd had students coming uh, I think even then from uh, African nations and so on, who were complete beginners. So we went as a group of qualified acupuncturists. So it was a big deal. We were on 
television and you know they 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 milked it and we were looked after very well and assigned to very experienced doctors who didn't really know what <laughs> what they were in for really and it was after about three or four days that the doctor I worked with, Dr. Shell, said, uh, he said, I don't understand. You know Chinese medicine theory. And he was clearly quite pleased, even impressed perhaps. Um, but you don't know anything about needling. So needling in, in Britain in the school I went to and in the five element school was a kind of um, a tiny thing, a small thing, tiny needles, uh, barely penetrating the skin, sometimes falling out during the treatment because they hadn't been put in very deeply. And when we were mystically told that the reason they fell out was that they'd done their work and the body didn't need them anymore, Yes, I remember hearing that myself. <laughs> Bullshit detector. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> it could have been user error on the part of the acupuncturist, right? And suddenly I was encountered by, I encountered what, the thing that came to my mind was the old um, magic act where a guy puts somebody, usually a woman, in a box and then starts penetrating the whole box with swords. <laughs> you know, she's miraculously unhurt. I mean, this this doctor was putting needles in so strong and so deep that I was really shocked initially. But I came to understand that, and also they talked a lot about, um, they didn't talk about the acupuncturist having tea. They never mentioned that, but they did talk about the acupuncturist having finger force. And so actually mm. trained strong hands and strong fingers because the needling was uh, understood to be a really physical act. It was a really strong physical intervention so that acupuncture treatment wasn't like 99% theory with a little bit of a little dab of acupuncture added at the end. The acupuncture was... Um, you know, really strong. And patients were habituated to it. So when we started needling patients, they used to complain. They were, you know, not strong enough. They're not getting qi. They were a tough lot, of course. Since 1981, China, life was, was still very, very tough um, physically. You know, people were doing hard physical labor. Um, there were no cars. People walked or cycled everywhere in the middle of winter. Um, if they had to have teeth out, even certainly the poorest people had them out in the street without anaesthetic, sit on a chair and some guy <laughs> pull their teeth out with a pair of pliers. So the relationship to physical intensity, let's not say pain or discomfort, was much higher than a kind of pampered, Western office worker. But I also understood, of course, that that was the background to acupuncture throughout its history. You know, we talk about, you know, people, there are 
I can't knock them. I don't want to criticize them. There are very soft forms of acupuncture, very gentle forms, Japanese styles. But if you pay any, just do a little bit of logical thought until the development of the modern acupuncture needle, needles were brutal things. You know, they weren't super fine. They didn't have super fine points. They were thick. And in fact, so the, the needles used in the hospital I worked in were not disposable. Of course not. In the 80s? Yeah, they were, they were autoclaved and used again and again and again and again. I did that when I came back to the UK and then one day I bought a microscope and looked at the end of some of the needles. <laughs> I was using oh. And they were, you know, they were, it was terrible. I'll <laughs> no, bet. No wonder patients were yelling, but which is what, what the needles were like in China. But that wasn't really what the impact was. The impact was getting really powerful cheese sensation. And it was a matter of pride, you know, slightly macho pride among some of the doctors, the, the, how powerful a cheese sensation they could get, and particularly how far they could make it travel. You know, so we had a demonstration from this one wonderfully dynamic guy who, who's, um, he was famous for putting a needle in gallbladder 40 and making the cheese sensation travel either down to the ankle or up to the side of the head. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that, that was the kind of milieu of acupuncture, but it would all have been a bit um, irrelevant if I hadn't seen such wonderful results. Yeah, what kind of results did you see? What, what kind of things were treated that you didn't realize could be treated? If you have chronic disease, clearly um, it takes time. However, however good your acupuncture is, it takes time. So, of course, we were treating people with strokes, we were treating people with asthma, treating people with epilepsy, and uh, they were getting treated, many of them were getting treated every day, six days a week. So their recovery was relatively faster. But the really dramatic demonstration was with acute disorders. So when people came in, for example, bent double with acute back sprain and walked out freely. Or another example is an odd one. Um, We had twice, well, once maybe, we had a patient brought in suffering from what's called biliary ascariasis. So that's basically worms in the gallbladder. Passed on from eating uh, raw vegetables when they were working in the fields because the for mm. as long as we know, certainly two or 3,000 years, the main fertilizer was human, human manure. Yep, human, human waste. Human waste, so the bugs got past. And they'd get into the gallbladder and then for some reason they'd um, emigrate out the gallbladder into the bile duct. And it mimicked, it was almost identical to the pain of gallstones and 
people have said that's one of the two or three most painful conditions the body can suffer. So I remember we had a guy brought in by his brother, carried on his back to the second floor of the hospital, but had no elevator. He'd been um, awake for 36 hours, groaning in agony. He was brought in almost screaming in agony. And uh, the acupuncture needles went in, and in 30 seconds he was asleep. Bang. It was those kind of acute sprains, uh, and also acute appendicitis. So the hospital I was in specialised in treating acute appendicitis with acupuncture. So those kind of acute emergency situations, that's where I saw how powerful it could be. Kind of these days when I was there, and that was the early 2000s, there was this common thing that I would hear, not just from the people, but also from the doctors, which worried me, actually. They'd say things, it's a very common phrase. Well, Western medicine for acute issues and Chinese medicine for chronic. That's the way it works. But clearly, we know that acupuncture can do wonders in, a, in an acute situation. Were they, were they acupuncturists or were they herbalists? Um, that's a good question. I was mostly studying herbal medicine, so perhaps that's why those herbal doctors said that. And then there's just this common idea, you know, within, you know, the Lao Pai Xing, just the, you know, regular people, that something is chronic, use Chinese medicine. Something is acute, first go to Western medicine. But no, I, I the only acupuncturist I really spent time with there was Dr. Wang Jui. I spent, a, honestly, I had a very different experience. When I was in China and observing some of the acupuncture clinics, partly because I think the needling was so strong, or they were putting them like way deep into the abdomen, I thought to myself, I am not going to be able to practice like this where I live. This 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 is not going to be helpful to me as a practitioner. And I, I think probably to my detriment, I gave it a pass instead of going into it, figuring it out, and then figuring out how I might be able to modify it. So that was that was a missed opportunity on my part. Yeah, I came back from China and I was interviewed for the local newspaper because it was really unusual. It was very unusual for anybody to go to China, let alone go to China and study acupuncture. So they gave me a two-page spread in the local newspaper. And I was instantly overwhelmed with patience. Yeah, but that was great for business, huh? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I set up a, a multi-bed, you know, three, three beds, three curtain beds, a bit like mimicking what, was, what it was like in the Chinese hospital. I had a nurse assistant and I was treating, you know, maybe 80 patients a week. So the fact that I lost a percent, the fact that I lost a percentage of patients from doing Chinese-style mm. needling didn't sort of have such a big impact on me at first because there were plenty more where they came from before I kind of, you know, got a bit smarter and wiser and realized that I had to adapt my treatment. But that didn't mean that I completely changed. I just adapted to what patients could 
tolerate and some very emotionally sensitive and vulnerable patients, you know, I had to treat in a very, very soft way. But others, I could, you know, once I explained it, it's a bit like, I think there's a parallel with herbal medicine. If you give decoctions, full-strength, high-dose decoctions to people, and you introduce the subject to them by saying something like, well, these might taste pretty foul and you might find it really difficult to take, and you sort of, you know, talk them into the idea that they're not going to be able to tolerate them, and they come back, oh, no, they go, no, I couldn't, I couldn't drink it. Whereas if you are very matter-of-fact about it, and just assume they're going to drink them, then compliance is much, much higher. So I think how we, how we present it also makes a difference. Yeah, there's that, of course, how you, how you set it up and kind of invite people into the experience. I, I, tend, I tend to go on that side of these things are nasty. In fact, you might not even be able to drink it. I, I would actually exaggerate how awful it was and on occasion, they come in and go, yeah, you were right. That stuff's pretty nasty. Um, but they drink it. And then other people come in and go, well, actually, it's not so bad. I'd be like, okay, great. Maybe you trigger their kind of, I'm going to show him. I'm a... Yeah, exactly. I'll yeah. show him. It doesn't, whatever works, whatever gets yeah. them to drink it. Let's, you know, there's obviously more than, one, more than one approach. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think actually sort of... Um, well, two things. I think intolerance to strong needle is in itself a diagnostic sign. You know, I crudely, when I used to teach, I say it's the difference between you put a needle in so suddenly on one person and they go, oh, that's really strong down my leg. And you put a needle in so suddenly in another person and it threatens the very citadel of their being. It overwhelms their shed because they don't have Shen resilience. So people who are physically strong and perhaps doing manual labor, farmers and builders and so on, generally speaking, will have the ability to go, yeah, that's really, I can really, really feel that, but it's in my leg. It's not threatening my very existence. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a kind of crude diagnostic sign I'd say and also I don't know about you I mean I if I get massage if I get twinner I want it to be powerful mm -hmm. you know I'm not interested in going and being gently rubbed or oiled or <laughs> perfumed or you know <laughs> you know if I've got if I've got stagnation and pain in my muscles I, I'm happy to have somebody take me to the point of screaming, you know, which some of the most effective twin I've had has been like that. Really very difficult to tolerate, but very effective. So I guess different types were different types. Sure. There's that. I, I suspect there's something about the mind of the acupuncturist and how we are with doing the needling that also makes a difference. You know, I, I mean, I know that there's a, a line in the wing shoe about grasping the needle like you grasp the tiger or the tail of a tiger or something like that. I, I don't have it memorized. I'm terrible with stuff like that. But I found for myself that if I'm okay 
with needling in in a strong way, if I'm okay, if I'm settled and I'm good with it, the patient's going to be a lot better. I, I recently learned a uh, a system called Sa'am and it uses a lot of Jingwell points. And when I first started to learn it, I looked at all those Jingwell points and I thought, oh man, I don't know, I might have to give this a pass. That's a lot of damn Jingwell points. And then the next thought that came into my mind was, Michael Max, shut the hell up. You're an acupuncturist. You're an acupuncturist. And if you're worth your salt, you'll be able to needle those points. So you better figure that out. So <laughs> I talk to myself all the time when I'm practicing like that. And uh, what I came to find was if I was okay with needling a Jingwell point, it went a whole lot better for the patient. It really makes a difference where our mind and our spirit and our shen and our intention, not intention of what's going to happen for the patient, but our intention of how I'm going to use this needle makes a huge difference. Two things come to mind about that. The first is that it could be argued that medicine is nasty, you know, and somewhere along the line, you have to pay the price for medicine with a bit of suffering. So what, you know, what we've done with Western medicine has made delivery of um, pharmaceutical medicine very easy. You just pop a pill. The nastiness might come later with side effects. Um, the, the nastiness of acupuncture, if you kind of, you probably will hurt patients if you do acupuncture. The nastiness is up front. You know, there's no price to pay down the line. So, you know, whatever it is, surgery, internal medicine, foul herb or bruise, somewhere on the line it's going to be unpleasant. But it's not hidden unpleasant. <laughs> it's really up front. That's one thing. The other thing I want to say is, is uh, completely different. So I think any thoughtful person looking at the world of acupuncture cannot help but be struck by the fact that there are hundreds of acupuncturists and hundreds of teachers out there doing hundreds of different things. You know, in the end, not much in common. You know, you know, you even have non-needling forms of acupuncture. So every single part of the delivery, how the points are chosen, how the needle, how many needles used, depth of needle, retention of needle, this system, that system, it's overwhelming if you try and be objective about it. But they will have one thing in common, which everybody does and says, well, they work. Okay. So then we have to start thinking, what is actually working here? Mm. And in there's, there's some the famous research on psychotherapy. They wanted to find out which kind of psychotherapy was most effective. And the conclusion after the study was it wasn't really anything to do with the style of psychotherapy. It was the therapeutic relationship. So I've been very interested in the effect of the practitioner on the patient. And that is potentially an extremely powerful thing. We, is it okay just talk about it for a minute? Absolutely. So, you know, you know when I was, I've been writing a book about Qigong and previously I wrote a book about uh, Yangsheng Chinese lifestyle and that kind of, reacquainted me with the autonomic nervous system and 
a lot of people who are suffering, people suffering anxiety, people suffering pain, people suffering chronic disease, are to varying degrees locked into sympathetic dominance. You know, they're a state of they're not really able to enter that truly deep parasympathetic rest, relax, healing, repair state. And one thing acupuncture does on a very crude level when you stick needles in, I think, is it shifts people into parasympathetic states. So we all know it's so common. People go, oh, I don't know what you did to me, but I was so sleepy after the treatment and I went home, I you know, had to go to bed. It's quite a familiar thing. But even more so, and even more important and more powerful, is that when we, the practitioner, are, are in genuine parasympathetic state, I mean, we're centered, we're calm, we're open, we listen, we're friendly, we're not faking it. Faking is not so effective. You can put on that caring voice, but if it's not really real, it doesn't work so well. Yeah, there's no, there's no, and there's no such thing as fake it till you make it. Yeah. Right? There's only doing it and figuring out how to do it. Yeah. So the very moment the patient encounters, it could even be a phone call, the first phone call or the first visit, who we are and how we are transmits an invitation to them to uh, let go of some of this chronic sympathetic activation. And for some people, we may be the only person in their life that offers that invitation. I mean, if they've got stressful work situation with domineering uh, bosses or unpleasant work colleagues or they've got domestic stress and strife or whatever, then, you know, and particularly if they're really troubled people, they may have nobody they encounter that can transmit these messages, these very subtle messages that human beings are actually quite good at picking up, that they're safe. You're in a safe situation. You can trust this person. Um, they've got no hidden agenda. And that is really in itself really healing. And that, I think, is sort of one of the things we offer. And one of the things that sort of can help make sense of all these different styles of acupuncture that all work. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 
2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. So it's not what we do. It's who and how we are in the presence of the patient. That second one is terribly important, which is why I think that the, you know, one of the special things about Chinese medicine, which can feel like a burden or it can feel like an inspiration, is the, the kind of message taught in, uh, in the Neijing, Yellow Emperor's Classic, and also embodied by doctors such as Sun Tzu Miao, that a doctor is a cultivated person. And when I say cultivated, I don't mean they go to the opera, although they might. I mean a self-cultivated person. And the power that that has, the healing power that has. The sage, what the, you know, what the Neijing calls the, the sage doctor. So not a, not a addicted, chain-smoking, suicidal general practitioner. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, may, maybe for certain people there'd be a resonance and it's a place to start. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I give a lot of thought myself these days to the, especially cause there's increasingly all this really interesting research and these ideas about the polyvagal theory and the vagus nerve. And it's like, wow, that's cool stuff. Can't say I understand. You know, I understand that as much as I understand quantum physics, meaning very little, but enough to go. Wow. Yeah. It, it. I think there's something here, and one of the things that I've noticed in my clinic, this happens all the time. You've probably noticed it too. People listening, I think you've noticed it. Put a needle or two in, and all of a sudden the stomach starts to rumble, right? start to get that glue, 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 as they say in Chinese, and the, the, the intestines, they start working again. The peristalsis kicks in. Why is that peristalsis kicking in again? Because they're coming out of fight and flight. And they're, coming, they're coming into that parasympathetic. Digestion is the first thing that will start to come back online. Yeah. And you know, people are always embarrassed about it. Oh, my God, I'm sorry, my stomach, I, ate. I don't know why it's gurgling. So yeah, it's okay. Don't worry. You're actually just relaxing. It's just fine. Sometimes when you're just taking a pulse, it'll do it. It's like, okay, game on. It's a really helpful indication. Yeah, and that's even when we're taking the pulse where, you know, gentle touch, caring touch is already helping to shift people. Sure, and attentiveness. Attentiveness and listening. Yeah, for sure. There's a, uh, I've said this on the podcast before, but I'm going to say it again because it, it's just one of my favorite things. There's this book I read about this master guitar maker. It could take him 10 years to make a guitar because he makes it in his own damn time. Thank you very much. But he's like genius guitar maker. And the guy who wrote the book is interviewing this other guitar maker talking about this guy and he's asking this guitar maker, so like, what's the most important thing that goes into the making of a guitar? And the guy says, well, there's about 600 different things that you have to do. But the most important thing is the state of the mind of the guitar maker as they're making the guitar. Yeah. I think that's true for the work we do as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you haven't always been just a curious and maybe troublesome student of acupuncture. You've also contributed to the profession in all kinds of ways. 
You fired up a magazine. When did you fire up the Journal of Chinese Medicine? What, what got you started with that? I started just after I qualified. The years that I spent in the natural food business, where we had fundamentally no money, and whatever needed doing, we had to learn how to do ourselves. Oh, we need shells, or I would have to learn how to build shells. You know, we need whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Oh, we need accountancy. I have to learn how to do the books. Well, it's kind of that, it's, it's that good hippie, uh, we can do it ourselves yeah. DIY thing. Exactly. Yeah. So after I qualified, I had very few. Oh, hang on a second. When you say qualified, what does that mean? Uh, that was the, my, the end of my three years at Ackermann School. Okay, so you got your degree and now you can... Yeah. You don't have, do you have licensure or do you just qualify and then you're good to go? Um, fundamentally, you're good to go and you still are. Mm. There's no control of acupuncture in the UK. Anybody can stick needles in. You just, you can, in the UK, you can legally perform brain surgery um, without any qualifications at all. You will, however, be prosecuted if you call yourself a brain surgeon. And if you injure somebody, but you are allowed to do it. But, but I know. <laughs> okay, kids, don't try this at home. Yeah. <laughs> so there I was with a lot of time on my hands and the familiarity with that I need to do something. And because I told you there are only like five books on acupuncture in English, I, I, I thought, you know, we really need... Yes, plus that bootleg copy of notes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we need a journal. So I started one and, um, you know, I got my mates to write it, Giovanni Machocci wrote and Julian Scott, who's still working specialist in pediatrics and eye diseases and various people. And for a few years it was really a, a, um, a you know, put together on a typewriter in my bedroom um, with with probably the first eight or nine years. We had maximum 200 subscribers. But I stuck with it. It's a bit like having a baby, you know. You have to stick with it. It goes on year after year. And <laughs> luckily, like a baby, it grew, eventually grew. Mm. So I did that for 40-odd years. And that was really about the desire to uh, make, make information available, education. You mentioned the acupuncture textbook, and quite rightly, um, okay, this is what I see in this book. Uh, who's saying, oh, well, it's taken from what some old Chinese people said. But what I want to say about that is, with a young profession and with what I experienced of, of people who were not well informed about the history of Chinese medicine and the history of practice, the great tendency to make things up, my fellow authors, particularly Mazin Al-Kafaji and myself, one of our aims was to say, well, look, this is the recorded tradition. It's not the last word, you know, by any means, but this is where we start from. Mm-hmm. You know, if we quote doctors going back 
so nearly 2,000 years, not quite, saying, talking about the acupuncture points and their indications and how they're used and so on. This, to us, this was treasure, deep treasure mm-hmm. that we wanted to bring into the light. In a sense, you were also like teaching yourself. You'd taken what you already had and, and you really went a lot deeper with it. Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, that really changed my practice. It changed how I used acupuncture, certainly, slowly. One of the things is it's really hard to change one's needle, one's point selection habit. You get into a habit, you get into a rut. So it took time, but it did change the way that I that I practiced. Um, I mean, I don't practice anymore. And I think if I had my time over again, I would pay more attention to palpation-based practice, to more physical, to the more physical end of diagnosis. And I'd learn... What leads you to say that? What is it that you see now that you maybe didn't see back then? That's a difficult question. So I mentioned Julian Scott. Do do you know him? Are you familiar with him? I do, yes. Yeah, he was in Seattle for a period of time when I was... I didn't study at the school he was at, but I knew of him. Oh, okay. He said a few things, because he was a friend, still is, but that stuck in my mind. One of them is said, you know, Western medicine, it's recognized that different types of people go into different branches of medicine. So, for example, the intellectuals, the smart people, go into general practice. The patient who comes in the door could have one of many, many hundreds of conditions, and you have to have at least some knowledge of nearly all of them. You have to study a lot. And you have to be thoughtful and you have to think things through and so on. The um, surgeons, so in, in Britain, it's kind of a stereotype. They're the rugby players. So um, <laughs> I don't think you can create a parallel, but, you know, they're the uh, yeah, some kind of the American football, you know. They're kind of like the, the stereotypical images. They're quite big and they're muscular and they're not always the smartest light bulbs in the pack. And when they encounter a problem, pretty soon they start thinking, like, where can I cut? Mm -hmm. They don't really want to listen to the patient's lifestyle and how they feel about their mother and all that kind of thing. So he said, well, you know, the same thing in Chinese medicine. The herbalists are the intellectuals. And the one end of the spectrum, and the very, very physical practitioners at the other end of twin or massage. So where do acupuncturists fall in that? And the the feeling I've got is that they are their proper place is more towards the twin or physical end of the spectrum than the intellectual end of the spectrum. As far as treatment is concerned, this goes back to this quite physical treatment, but I would add in, I would have liked to have been better educated in um, musculoskeletal disorders and palpation and, you know, body work, really, 
to complement, not to replace, to mm-hmm. complement the other side of Chinese medicine, which is the one I love most, passionate about, is the, the use of the theories of Chinese medicine, and particularly differentiation of patterns, to quite deeply understand people in terms of their life. Yes, not just their illness, yeah. but in terms of their life. It's, Peter, I hear you say that, and it just, you know, it goes through me because I find that if I can come up with a pattern, if I can discern, probably the best way to say is discern the pattern. If I can discern the pattern, then there's all kinds of other things I just might know about this person that lets me help them. The first English language acupuncture textbook that, that even touched on theory, and it, in um, the discussion of different, differentiation of patterns, they said it points forwards to the treatment and backwards to the cause. Mm. And that's really what we're saying. I mean, more than the cause, but uh, you see, I think, and I'm, I'm sure you do too, I think the way Chinese medicine, so-called TCM, which is often used as a disparaging term, the way that it's constructed is the most sophisticated form of medicine that human beings have come up with in any culture. uh, That is my take on it because it embraces the threefold analysis, if you like, of a patient Number one, what disease is it? Mm. So we, we used to hear endlessly people go, no, only Western medicine diagnoses diseases. Chinese medicine doesn't diagnose disease. That's completely wrong, totally wrong. You know, all Chinese medicine doctors properly trained start by naming the disease because that already tells you a lot, tells you a lot about prognosis. It already indicates some aspects of the treatment you're going to give them. So that's level one of analysis. Level two of analysis is um, what's the underlying pattern, which then enriches your, your treatment, determines a lot of your treatment, helps you understand what the origin of the disease might be, how it can make, can have come about. Heart injury comes about for different reasons than liver tea stagnation, for example. And and then it adds in, um, it addresses the unique presentation of the individual. Not just the disease, not just the pattern. So 50 patients can come in with the same disease, 10 patients can share the same pattern, and then every single one of the 50 patients is unique and has got unique characteristics that need to be addressed in the analysis and the diagnosis and the treatment. I don't know any other medicine as smart as that. To do all that, you mean? Yeah. You know, if you like puzzles or if you're just interested in people, endless fascination using these lenses and ways of interacting with people. Endless. Yeah. Just like a detective, really. Oh, very much so. I always enjoyed the articles that uh, Steve Clavey would write on occasion, the 
journals of what, Mallory Chan, was it, that he'd write in The Lantern? He'd, uh, d- did you read any of those? You familiar with his with those stories? Well, I did used to read The Lancet once in a while. Yeah, no, he, he's written a number of detective stories. I mean, they're actual detective oh, yeah? stories. <laughs> and, and, they're, and they're all about medicine. They're, they're really well done. Yeah. Did you ever come across John Shen, Dr. John Shen? I have, but I, um, I haven't really studied his stuff. Well, he worked, he was born in China. His family moved to Taiwan after the revolution. And then he ended his working life in New York, came to Britain in two or three times, three times, giving workshop seminars in the 1980s. He- oh, John Shen. Wait, you said John Shen? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who worked with uh, Dr. Hammer. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not John Shen, the herbalist who wrote a herbal pharmacopoeia different. He profoundly influenced my generation. So Giovanni Machacha, Julian Scott, myself, and lots of others. Uh-huh. Because he was, he was just like out of the Chinese detective books. It, he was so jaw-droppingly <laughs> brilliant at, it was like magic, at knowing what had happened in somebody's life to cause this. I mean, I heard a story recently, very briefly, from another a practitioner who worked, who observed him in New York, of this very, very wealthy French woman who came from France because she suffered from terrible, terrible headaches and had seen every specialist without help and really a last resort flew to New York. So he just... um, he found. He asked a few questions. She was the heiress of a uh, a very wealthy cosmetics company, and I can't remember the exact sequence of events. But he asked a couple of questions, and one of them he asked about her makeup, uh, and did he see? Looked under the eyelid, took her pulse, like two minutes, and then. He started asking her how her visit to New York was going. You know, have you seen the Empire State Building? You know, what are you doing here? And she got quite ratty about it. She said, I've, I've come all this way to see you, you know, to be helped. And now you're asking me what tourist site. He said, it's all right, madam. I've cured You're cured already. So what it turned out was that the cosmetic company had developed a 24-hour mascara which she wore, and he realized it was unusual because when he rubbed his finger across her eyelid, there was no black on it, didn't, didn't come off in his finger. And he had asked her, he said, how long have you been wearing that mascara? And she said, oh, two and a half years, which was the period she'd had the, the headaches. So he instantly discerned that she was allergic to this um, mascara, and as soon as she stopped wearing it, it would get better, which it did. So, um, <laughs> you know, that was, he did that all the time. It was, I mean, it was inspiring, but it was also depressing because none of us felt we could aspire to that level of acute detectivism, you know. 
Yes. Well, and some of it is how do you even frame yourself and what it is you do? For a long time, I framed myself as an acupuncturist. I remember being in acupuncture school, you know, and I'm here to be an acupuncturist. And, and they taught us gua sha. And I'm like, yeah, gua, yeah, whatever, you know, this grandma folk thing. I ignored it when I was in acupuncture school. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Well, years later, I find out it's really useful. But I'm thinking I'm an acupuncturist. I'm here to learn how to use needles. I, I could see in a situation like that, someone coming in like her, and I'm thinking, where am I going to put a needle? My job is to put a needle in somewhere. But no, my job is to use these skills to help her in the way that's going to be helpful for her. Maybe that's using a needle. Maybe it's doing something different. Maybe it's using your brain. Yeah. It's using your brain. That's a, that's a great cautionary tale, Peter. Thank you. That's yeah. a great well, story. His, his constant message was when encountering a patient, the first question you ask is why? Why, why, why? Why is this person? Why has this person reached this point in their life that they need help? What's going on? Yeah. That's helpful. So you've been here in this profession kind of from the beginning. You've contributed to the profession. You know, there's a lot, I think a lot of us are grateful to you for, for helping us to learn, whether it's the books or the, the journals. I think you have an app these days. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, just as a way of winding this down rather than looking back, and I understand that you're retired from acupuncture at this point, but as you, as you look forward into the future ways, what do you see as the opportunities for our profession? You, you saw certain opportunities when you were a young man. It drew you into it. What are the opportunities that you see for us? Or maybe the challenges that you see for us over the next, next journey of the way down the road of being acupuncturist here in the West? Yeah, well... So my journey, which began with um, the dietary thing that we can look after ourselves and improve our health through our dietary behavior, brought me around full circle. One of the reasons I stopped practicing acupuncture is I wanted to move more into health education. Mm. And that led to me writing, I don't know if you've seen a book called Live Well, Live Long. Yes, yes. It's been out, what, two or three years now? Oh, no, it's been out eight years, seven or eight years. Eight, seven or eight years. Okay, yeah. well, see, I'm getting old. My brain's not working so good. That's sort of, sort of my best attempt to convey the wisdom of the Chinese nourishment of life tradition, which is basically how to live to be as well as possible and live as long as possible. And that is very much tied up with my passion for Qigong, and I'm just at the closing stages of finishing my book on Qigong. But going back to really what we're saying, which is the way the medicine, Chinese medicine, is constructed, it's founded, Chinese medicine is founded on the idea of um, prevention and lifestyle medicine. Just read the Yellow Emperor's classic, you know, uh, the sage doctors didn't intervene after the disease had arisen. That's like 
trying to dig a well when you're already thirsty or trying to forge weapons when the battle's raging around you. The diseases that afflict human beings now are chronic, non-infectious diseases, cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, dementia, strokes, depression. Most of them are incurable once they developed. You know, you're not going to cure serious cardiovascular disease. You're going to manage it. Mm. That's the case with most of them. And the problem is that they are, because of modern lifestyles, they are increasing exponentially all over the world. So the rates of all those chronic diseases are expected to double within the next 20 years. And health services at the moment can't really cope with the cost of managing them as they are. And, you know, the resources become more and more unaffordable. So the future of medicine, ignoring all the high-tech biohacks, the true future of medicine is preventive medicine. It's logical. It has to be. It's the only solution. People have to live healthier lives. They have to eat better. They have to move better. Uh, they have to cultivate better mental and emotional states. And that is what we are the, um, we're the ninjas of. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, Because it's embodied in our medicine, we understand it. We really understand the effect of diet, the effect of lack of movement, the effect... And, and we understand the, the potentially positive interventions of those things. We understand really better, because of differentiation of patterns, better than anybody else, what this patient in front of me is going to most benefit from. So I would like to say one of the challenges and one of the opportunities of the Chinese medicine profession is to proudly take its place as... Um, leaders and educators of a healthy lifestyle. So why can't clinics be educational centres? A clinic, you know, it, I know it's a bit idealistic, but it's a vision. Our clinic doesn't only treat patients; it teaches them, has classes in mindfulness and qigong and tai chi and uh, dietary practice and all kinds of things. Uh, so we are the leaders in lifestyle medicine and a particular passion of mine. Everybody in the world is called upon now to um, to save the world, really. You know, our world is heading for destruction. Human life is heading for destruction and animal and insect life is heading for destruction because of human behaviour. Climate change is the biggest threat to human health that there is. We had the news yesterday, one in six of all species, all animal and plant species and animal species, is threatened with extinction now. So we're living through what, I have to say, without being too gloomy, could be the end days, you know, for our civilization. certainly as we know it. Um, but we can't afford to be hopeless. We have to look it square in the face and we have to engage. And med me medicine has always been at the forefront of public health. You know, it was doctors who discovered you need to drink clean water. 
to, for example. Um, and because our medicine is so deeply rooted in the natural world, yin-yang, five phases, herbs, the view of the body as an ecosystem of flowing water, all these ways that we look at our medicine are rooted in the natural world. I feel our profession has an even greater obligation to stand up on behalf of nature and try and embody it in uh, how we behave, the political parties that we vote for, the way we run our clinics, the way we run our conferences. There's opportunities really to model. Um, I know I'm getting a bit carried away, but we need vision. You know, we always need vision. We do. That's true. And the way that our medicine is very much relational and nature-based, that that gives us a lot to work with. Yeah. And these are times that ask for more than just a needle. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> However wonderful. However wonderful it is. However wonderful it is. You said you have a book coming out on Qigong? Yeah. When is when is that coming out? When will that um, out? Hopefully early uh, next year, January maybe. Um, you know, it's, it's all written now. I you know, Because I lay out and design my books myself, I self-publish, so I'm doing a lot of work now on the layout and design. But it's, yeah, it's something I've been working very focused on for the last year and a half. And, you know, I want it to be, it is, I hope, something that's, not been done in quite the same way before because, again, like the Manual of Acupuncture and like Live Well, Live Long, it's well, certainly like Live Well, Live Long, it's deeply rooted in the Chinese tradition. So I've mm. written to my best ability about some core ideas of Chinese philosophy and uh, that underlie it and the history of self-cultivation practices. But I've equally brought in um, research that illuminates and helps explain why we're doing these weird things. Why are we doing slow breathing? Why are we moving very slowly? You know, things that are seem mysterious, but actually have brilliant explanations. Okay, so give us just a little glimpse into what is the power of slow? Of slow yeah, slow movement. What's the power of slow movement? Well, we're such a fast-paced world. Yeah. Well, I suppose three things. One is calming the mind. Mm. It's badly needed nowadays. One is to integrate movement with slow breathing. So if you're going to do slow breathing and you want to seamlessly integrate movement, you have to do slow movement with that. And the third thing is that as far as body work is concerned, the slower you move, the more time you have to be aware of what's actually going on in your body. And that applies to, you know, that is incredibly valuable. So I think all sports people should do slow qigong. I mean, if you're going to, um, what's your favorite sport? Do you have, are you into sport? Sailing. Okay. I'm not sure if it applies to <laughs> I can't. Well, it probably does. I mean, you have to be you have to be mindful in your movement. A lot of balance is involved. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking, for example, if you serve a tennis ball, 
um, the movement and the power has to seamlessly flow through the connective tissue, the fascia, and the muscles from the feet right up to the hand. And the more seamlessly it flows in an uninterrupted way, without blockages and without um, misfiring, the, the, more, the easier and more effective and more powerful your serve will be. So anybody, anybody watching a professional tennis player has got that. But if you want to develop that skill faster and better, you just slow it right down. You become aware, what, you know, actually, what is my foot doing? Mm-hmm. What is my ankle doing? Where is my knee in relation to my foot and my ankle? Yeah, what's the tension? What's the tension in my, in the calf of my leg, and how does that relate to my hip? Exactly. And how does that change the power in my arm? Where is the unnecessary tension? Mm. You know, what, so this training of slow movement, we're actually training uh, the mind we're training the breath and we're doing really quite high level body work body cultivation that all sounds about right to me i'm looking forward to reading the book good (laughs) i'll send you a copy that'd be wonderful and if people want to get or you have like a mailing list or something people could get on so they find out if it when it is published or well, I put some, you asked me to put some contacts in some, in, on your website. Yeah, yeah, for the show notes page. But the, if people are particularly interested in that book, there's a very simple um, website that takes you straight to a rather crudely designed page, but it's got, at the moment, it's got the contents and it's got some sample pages, and it's simply works. <laughs> love it that's great well peter Deadman is always a delight to talk with you and and thank you for this uh glimpse at, at the old days and how they're informing the new days and you know a really personal walk through medicine that you've had it's been a real delight thank you it's been a pleasure i, I, I take my hat off anybody to anybody who listens the full hour and a half but I think you might be surprised. I think people like the long conversations, actually. Good. Okay. Right. All right. Well, thank you, Mike, so much. Thanks for the opportunity. My pleasure. Peter's comment about how three guys went to Hong Kong to learn some acupuncture and then came back and started three different schools. Emblematic, isn't it, of how in this trade... We all have some fundamentals that we share. And at the same time, there are at times vociferous differences of opinion on what the proper practice of acupuncture actually is. It seems to be built into the DNA of our trade that we have competing schools of thoughts and some sharp tongue opinions about colleagues on the other side of the track, so to speak. And yet, acupuncture, despite coming from a completely foreign way of thinking, has entangled itself into the mainstream cultures of the West. People like Peter, they used their own interest and curiosity in a way that helped those of us who came later to learn it. 
I often wonder what drives someone to move forward when you don't know which way forward might be. And that brings me back to something I said at the beginning of the show about asking an 18-year-old what they want to do with their life. They may not have a clear-cut answer, even if they brush you off with what seems like one, but what they do have is a sense of possibility and that they are made for something, even if they don't know what that something might be. That is the kind of chi worth cultivating our entire life long. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.